Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Battlefield Next. My name is Major Jason Coffey. Before we get started with this episode, let's do some housekeeping. The views expressed in the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Today's episode is an interview of Mr. Fred Bork, Professor of Legal History and Leadership at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School and the Regimental Historian Archivist for the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Corps. Mr. Bork is interviewed by Major Keone Medici, Associate Professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's School. On today's episode, Mr. Bork and Major Medici preview Mr. Bork's remarks for the 19 November 2020 Symposium commemorating the 75th anniversary of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We join the episode already in progress. Good morning. My name is uh, Keone Medici, and I'm an associate professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Today, I have the privilege of talking to our regimental historian, Mr. Frederick Bork, about the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. The LCS is going to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg and also the subsequent proceedings of that tribunal. Today, we're going to ask a few questions of Mr. Bork so that we can develop a better understanding of this event and learn from its legacy. Mr. Bork, we're leading up to the International Military Tribunal back in August, celebrating the London Charter. So this is kicking off. You tell us about where we're at in history 75 years ago today. Yes, of course I can. And it's a pleasure for me to be here talking on this uh, podcast. Let me give you a couple of bottom lines up front. First of all, it is 75 years since the start of the Nuremberg trial. The International Military Tribunal started on the 20th of November, 1945. So obviously next month is the 75th anniversary. But let me give you three bottom lines up front, as I said. The IMT, International Military Tribunal, truly is the foundation of modern international criminal law. For the first time in history, an international court had ruled that there's individual criminal liability for violations of international law, including acts of state. And this is really critical because prior to this time, International law did not really have the idea that an individual could be criminally liable for violations of international law, including war crimes. Second, the International Military Tribunal, the IMT, established that crimes against humanity are part of LOAC, the Law of Armed Conflict. And by crimes against humanity, I mean genocide. Uh, the murder of some six million Jews by the Nazis in World War II, a crime of such horrific proportions that we have a new crime, crime against the crimes against humanity. And the last thing to leave you with as a bottom line up front is that the IMT is the death knell for superior orders as an absolute defense to a war crime. And this is really important because prior to this time, 
superior orders, the superior orders defense, I was only following orders in killing prisoners of war, mistreating civilians, etc., had been an absolute defense. And that had been the rule in LOAC prior to the IMT. So, uh, Major Medici, you ask me where we are. Well, prior to uh, the start of the trial on 20 November 1945, uh, there was, was a lot of discussion about, should we even have a trial? There were some very senior leaders in the UK, in the US, and in France, who said, why do we need a trial? The guilt of these Nazis is so black that they should just be taken out and executed. But believe it or not, it now appears that the idea for a trial actually came from the Soviet Union. And that was because Stalin thought back to the Moscow trials that the Soviets had held in 1938 1936, 1938, and for those of you who know your history, you know that these were very scripted. Uh, Everyone knew what the result was going to be. They were going to be found guilty, Uh, but this was a a public spectacle, and Stalin thought, I can have a trial like this in which the Soviet Union will come out as the victim and the Germans will be portrayed as the malevolent force, evil, guilty, And Stalin really thought he'd have sort of a scripted international trial uh, that would end up making the Soviet Union look really good. So it does appear that the Soviets had the idea for a trial. Of course, it didn't end up being the trial that Stalin thought he would get because once the the French and the British and the Americans got involved, they realized that you had to have some due process. You had to have a fair trial. You had to actually allow the defense to present evidence and be represented by counsel. So the the IMT that the Soviets wanted is not what they got. But really, what's really, really important, though, in history is that it does appear that the idea for the trial came from the Soviets. So one of the questions is, if we're going to have a trial, where is the trial going to be? Uh, The Soviets wanted to have it in Berlin. They wanted it in Berlin because Berlin was the capital of Germany. Uh, And by the way, they wanted it in Berlin because the Soviets controlled Berlin. The problem with having it in Berlin was Berlin was basically a destroyed city. There's not much left. However, in Nuremberg, the Palace of Justice was intact. And that was a place where you could have a court setting, an international trial. And remember, in Nazi history, Nuremberg was a very important location anyway. That's where the Nazi party had often held its big rallies. And so Nuremberg was chosen as the setting. Probably the last thing to talk about is they had to decide who was going to be tried. There were literally thousands and thousands maybe more than 100,000 Germans who could be tried for war crimes. We can't try all these people at this international tribunal. So the Allies, the French, the British, the Soviets, and the Americans, decided we'll try the major war criminals. And what's really important about this is that you're not trying trigger pullers, uh, those who were actually committing the crimes. Instead, you're trying 
policymakers. And again, this is the first time in history that policymakers, those who are responsible for waging this war, have been prosecuted. So you're prosecuting, for example, Reichsmarschall Hermann Göring, who was the number two guy uh, after Hitler and in charge of the Luftwaffe. You're trying senior SS leaders and senior military leaders and also senior civilians in the Nazi government who were waging this aggressive war. There are about 25, 25 of them. And probably the last thing to mention here is that the Allies decided that the smart thing to do was for the charter creating the Nuremberg Tribunal to state what the law was. So there were some lawyers who suggested, for example, well, we'll go in and we'll say international law applies. But the danger with that was that, as you know, at this particular period, international law is very customary. And so there was always the danger that there'd be a big argument about what was really a violation of international law. So what's significant about the IMT is that the charter actually states these are violations of law, crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And the only mission then for the four judges sitting on the International Military Tribunal is to decide whether or not, knowing what the law is, the 25 accused Nazi major war criminals are guilty. Mr. Bork, thank you for that rundown. Looking a little bit further into time and space, so following the charter, actually executing the criminal procedure here, could you speak to the indictments in the tribunal and specifically what these senior high-ranking officials were charged with? They're all charged with conspiracy to commit one of the three acts. The first is crimes against peace. The second offense, the second crime, as I said, is crimes against humanity. And the third offense was committing war crimes. So what's really significant, I think, about the crimes against peace and the crimes against humanity is those were not necessarily crimes that occurred during the armed conflict. In fact, the argument really is that they weren't. So take crimes against peace. The idea was that planning for and waging an aggressive war was a crime. Well, it's pretty easy to say that you're waging an aggressive war if you violate a peace treaty or you violate some sort of a non-aggression pact. But what about planning? an aggressive war. I mean, after all, every army plans for different wars. In our own army, in the U.S. Army, we have many, many war plans to go to war with other countries. It doesn't mean these war plans are ever going to be executed, but the army is always planning. What made it easy at Nuremberg was that when Hitler and his henchmen would get together to plan these attacks on Poland, on the Low Countries, on France, on the Soviet Union, they always met in conferences 
And as uh, General Telford Taylor, who was one of the prosecutors at Nuremberg, said, with typical German efficiency, they kept very good notes of what they were doing at these conferences. So it was pretty easy to come up with the proof that the Germans were planning to wage these aggressive wars. Now, having said all of that, uh, crimes against peace, although it continues to be a crime under LOAC, has become pretty much a dead letter in the sense that there has been no prosecution of any person for a crime against peace since Nuremberg. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it featured prominently in the proceedings. The second crime, crimes against humanity, is really, really important uh, because we do then recognize that genocide or this wholesale murder of populations like Jews and gypsies uh, and political opponents um, can be so horrific that this is a crime against humanity. So that's the second offense in the indictment. And then the third offense is, I hate to say it, but your run-of-the-mill war crimes, uh, killing prisoners of war, uh, murdering civilians, uh, plundering, uh, all the things that we typically, as military justice or military legal practitioners, think about as being war crimes. So those are the three in the indictment. Mr. Bork, would you be willing to talk about the follow-on proceedings? Yes, absolutely. So one of the interesting things about the International Military Tribunal is that initially the Allies sort of assumed that there would be several of these, that there wouldn't be just one International Military Tribunal, but there would be a second one or even a third one. Uh, but by the end of the first IMT, the lead American prosecutor, Mr. Justice Jackson, who had taken a leave from the Supreme Court of the United States to serve uh, at the IMT as the, as the prosecutor, um, Jackson realized that a follow-on or a second or even a third IMT was really not a great idea. Part of the problem was that you had to always deal in four languages, Russian, French, English, and German. Uh, the second problem was that although the IMT had worked pretty well, the mix of civil law and common law had continued to cause some problems. For example, common law trained attorneys are very uncomfortable with courts considering hearsay. Civil law attorneys, however, are quite comfortable with considering hearsay. Uh, another example, under the civil law, a defendant, an accused, is often permitted to make an unsworn statement on the merits, and it can be considered as evidence. Common law attorneys don't like that at all. We don't want an unsworn statement. Maybe on sentencing is okay, but not on the merits. So, Jackson realized that, hey, we could have another IMT, but maybe there was a smarter way to go. And so Jackson advised President Truman, who's now in charge with the death of FDR, uh, that we probably shouldn't have another IMT, and maybe the way to go is for each one of the allies to prosecute war crimes in their own respective zones. 
So Germany is now divided into four occupation zones, a Soviet zone, which ultimately becomes East Germany, a French zone, a British zone, and an American zone. And the decision then ultimately is no more IMTs, but you British, you French, you Americans, you Soviets can try subsequent proceedings in your own zone. And so that's why the 12 subsequent proceedings are the follow-on. They are Nuremberg trials in the sense that they occur at Nuremberg in the Palace of Justice, but they are not IMT. They're not an international military tribunal because they're U.S. military courts. And the interesting thing about them is they, they're created by this council control law number 10, which is a law enacted by the allies, the four allies. And a, the council control law sets out what the crimes are, uh, but it's pretty much left up to the individual armies occupying, our, our, occupying, occupying armies to decide what these trials are going to look like. And in this particular case, Brigadier General uh, Betts, who's the senior army lawyer in Germany, Betts is the one who actually ended up drafting or, or having someone draft this council control law number 10, and it's also Betts who goes to the uh, commander of U.S. forces in Germany and pretty much gets the procedure set for these subsequent trials. You might be interested to know that although they're military trials, three civilian judges sit in judgment at all 12 proceedings. The prosecutor is military, Brigadier General Telford Taylor. And Taylor had been one of Jackson's assistants at the IMT, and that explains why Telford is picked. Telford is not a judge advocate, but he is a lawyer. He was a colonel until he convinced Jackson that really being a colonel was not prestigious enough and he needed to be a brigadier general, and that's why he's the prosecutor at the 12 subsequent proceedings. And those 12 proceedings prosecute a variety of Germans, I think almost 188 different accused in 12 different trials, and I can talk about some of those trials uh, if you want me to. Thank you, Mr. Bork. Can you give us some highlights of those 12 trials? I know some of them are quite significant. The justice case, for example, trial number three, but also the high command case and the hostage case. Your pick, sir. Yes, yeah, so uh, since you bring up the justice case, that is an extremely important case. Um, and, and in this case, the, the 15 accused were prosecuted for perverting the rule of law by transforming German courts, transforming the German justice system into a system of cruelty and injustice. And in this case, the Nazis used so-called people's courts and special courts to hold secret trials and in this way to eliminate civilians and political opposition to the Nazi party. What's really significant about the justice case, though, is that these German accused were charged with furthering the extermination 
of German Jews by making sure that discriminatory laws were passed that hurt them in any legal proceedings. In other words, depriving Jews of due process in German courts. That's the justice case, and that's called case number three. Case number one, the medical case, some of you may have heard of because this is the prosecution of doctors and other medical personnel who were carrying out medical experiments against usually prisoners of war, but in some case, concentration camp inmates. And the experiments which took place at Dachau included uh, using, injecting people with malaria, high-altitude experiments, sterilization, spotted fever, incendiary uh, experiments, all these sort of horrific medical experiments uh, that you sometimes read about. There were some cases where German industrialists were prosecuted for committing crimes against humanity. For example, case number five, the Flick case. Frederick Flick owned a group of companies, and he's charged with plundering or seizing properties belonging to Jews in Germany, Czechoslovakia, and other countries. And this was called an Aryanization of private property. Some of these industrialists were prosecuted, uh, like Flick and also um, the Krupp case, the Flick case and the Krupp case. Uh, the hostage case is very interesting, I think, to those of us involved in, in military law because this involved the Germans ordering the execution of thousands of civilian hostages in occupied territories in reprisal for attacks on German troops. What the Germans would do is they'd establish these arbitrary ratios. They'd say if one German soldier is killed, we're going to kill 50 civilians. And if one German soldier is wounded, we're going to kill 25 civilians. Well, this reprisals at the time were permitted under international law, but this sort of arbitrary ratio was condemned, obviously, by the Allies, and that's why the hostage case is so important. Uh, the hostage case also involved a number of cases where the defendants, the accused, were charged with illegally ordering their subordinates to deny prisoner of war status, for example, to Allied commandos, special ops personnel, uh, and then summarily executing them. Hitler, for example, ordered that all commandos, all what we would call special operators today, anyone was captured, would not be given POW status and would be executed without trial immediately. That's part of the hostage case. And then finally, the, uh, the high command case. That's an important case because a commander by the name of Wilhelm von Lieb and 13 other high-ranking Army and Navy commanders, officers are charged with committing crimes against peace and planning various wars of aggression and invasion. They're also charged with war crimes because they issued orders that certain enemy troops be refused quarter and denied POW status. And they're also charged with ordering the deporting of civilians in the occupied territories. Um, an interesting judge advocate piece here 
There's a former judge advocate colonel who had served as a lawyer in World War II, and he's one of the civilian judges in the high command case. His name is Justin Harding. And I think that probably covers the 12 subsequent trials. Right there, Mr. Bork. Can you tell us a little bit more about Judge Harding? Judge Harding had a very interesting career. As I said, he was a a colonel in the JAG department, as it was then known. But prior to his service as an Army lawyer, Justin Woodward Harding was a former assistant attorney general in Ohio, a United States attorney for the Alaska Territory, and a U.S. District Court judge for the First Division of Alaska from 1929 to 1933. So what's significant about Harding is he was a judge advocate, but he's also the only federal judge to sit on any of the 12 tribunals. The other civilian judges, although they were distinguished lawyers, had not been federal judges. Some of them had been state judges. Harding was born in uh, 1888, and he died in uh, 1976. Mr. Bork, would you be willing to talk about, we have the symposium planned for the 19th of November, 2020. What are you going to talk about, sir? Well, I'm going to give you a historical overview of the importance of the IMT in the development of international criminal law and sketch out briefly some of the same things that I've said in this podcast today, which is why this is important, why it has such a huge impact on the development of LOAC, and a little bit about the 12 subsequent proceedings. Because I think most of us, and myself included, as I said, we we often forget that there is something else other than the IMT, and these 12 subsequent proceedings are really important. Uh, let me leave you with a final thought here. If you're trying to put together the pieces of the war crimes puzzle, if you want to call it that, that happens after World War II, if you're just talking about Germans and German war crimes, at the top you'd have the IMT, where you have a Russian, a French, a British, and an American judge sitting in judgment of these major war criminals. Then at the next level, you've got the 12 subsequent proceedings. Well, right below them, remember, the army is still prosecuting lots of war crimes in Germany. For example, war crimes trials, usually we would call them military commissions, are being held at Dachau, and it's there that concentration camp personnel are being prosecuted. The most celebrated case uh, being the one done by uh, uh, Alexander uh, Denson, and Justice at Dachau is a book about that. So you've got the Americans, JAG Corps, really, prosecuting these cases below the 12 proceedings, and then even below that, you're going to have authorities in other countries prosecuting Germans for war crimes committed during the occupation. For example, while all this is going on, the Belgians are prosecuting war crimes in Belgium. The Dutch are prosecuting war crimes in Holland. The Norwegians are prosecuting war crimes in Norway. So that's the fourth piece of the puzzle. And then the fifth one is, don't forget, the German authorities themselves ultimately 
prosecute war crimes. In fact, every so often you'll pick up the newspaper and you'll read about some, in this case, usually someone in his late 80s or 90s being prosecuted in a German court for having been a guard at a concentration camp. So uh, this is, uh, I think, sort of the five pieces. What we're going to talk about at this symposium are the two top pieces, but there are three other up underneath there. Mr. Bork, before we wrap things up here, uh, would you be willing to share some book or um, streaming media recommendations for our listeners? So let me give you a couple of things. The first one is there's a brand new book out by Francine Hirsch, H-I-R-S-C-H, called Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg. Professor Hirsch is a professor of history. She's not a lawyer, a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's a very good book about the Soviet involvement in the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal. It's quite good. I recommend it. Oxford University Press. If you wanted to read about the subsequent trials, you'd want to read a book by Heller, H-E-L-L-E-R. can't remember his first name now, but it's all about the Nuremberg military trials, I think is the title of the book. Uh, let me give you one fiction book that I've read by Maggie O'Farrell, and it's called Hamnet, H-A-M-N-E-T. And it's a historical novel about William Shakespeare's son, Hamnet. And some scholars think that Hamnet may be, in fact, the inspiration for Shakespeare to write Hamlet. Now, two other things on Netflix for those of you who stream. There is a fabulous South Korean show on Netflix called Crash Landing on You. Crash Landing on You. And the storyline is that a, a rich, beautiful, spoiled South Korean uh, heiress woman goes hang gliding. And while she's hang gliding, a sort of a Wizard of Oz kind of tornado rushes through South Korea, and she's blown over the DMZ into North Korea and literally crash lands on a North Korean officer. You might think it sounds hokey. It's one of the best things I've seen in the last year. It's really, really good. It's the most popular show in South Korea, and it's, uh, it's really worth seeing. It's a romance. It's a thriller. It's a drama. It's a great storyline. Watch it on Netflix. The other show that you should take a look at is on Hulu, and that's the brand new Fargo with Chris Fox starring as a Kansas City gang boss. Yes, that Chris Fox. Rock, Rock, Chris Rock, sorry. Chris Rock. Well, it rhymes with Fox, okay? Chris Rock, he plays a gangster. Uh, on Hulu is really worth seeing. That's the fourth Fargo show. And then the last thing is, and I believe this is on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Trial of the Chicago 7 with Sasha Baron Cohen starring as Abby Hoffman and Michael Keaton starring as Ramsey Clark. That's really worth seeing, though. It's a true story about a true trial that happened after the Chicago riots in 1968. 
that should keep you busy till my next podcast. Thank you, Mr. Bork. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and as always, quite educating. That's it for the episode. For more information related to FCD, you can follow us on Twitter at JagFCD or by visiting our webpage. Finally, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While this is a podcast created by U.S. Army Judge Advocates from the Future Concepts Directorate, our goal is to reach other judge advocates and lawyers across the DOD, law students, and members of academia. Your reviews help make this possible.